This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm here speaking with Sharon Bala, author of the book, The Boat People, which was just awarded the Harper Lee Prize for legal fiction. Sharon, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So this is your debut novel. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to write this book and um, who you are and where you're from? So The Boat People, my novel, begins with the arrival of a cargo ship on the west coast of Canada. I'm Canadian. I'm a Canadian author. So this fictional ship arrives on the west coast of Canada and on board are 503 asylum seekers who have fled Sri Lanka at the end of the civil war, uh, which took place in that country and ended in 2009. So the book is set in 2009. And, you know, everyone seems to think that Canada is this really welcoming and generous place to refugees and that our doors are always open to people in need. And the truth is that sometimes that is accurate and often, just as often, it's inaccurate. And this was one of the things I really wanted to explore. And the genesis of the novel was a real ship of refugees who had fled Sri Lanka at the end of the Civil War and come to Canada. And those people were not welcomed here. And our government at the time tried very, very hard to send all of them back. And I started working on this book in 2013, which was about three years after the real ship, which was called the MV Sunsea, arrived. Um, My book is a fiction, but I was inspired by this real ship. And also I took a lot of um, the things that were said about these people in real life and used them in my fiction. And I guess what interested me was in that particular moment, Canada was just very unwelcoming and um, had a very closed door policy. And I was interested in that, but I was also interested in the sort of longer term history of how we in this country in Canada feel about asylum seekers, refugees, about people who come in a quote unquote irregular way. And the word irregular, really all that means is just you don't come the way the vast majority of people come, which is that the vast majority of refugees come on a plane in small groups or just by themselves. Um, And anytime you come a different way, so for example, now there are a lot of people who are fleeing through the U.S. and crossing the land border and coming to Canada that way. That's considered quote-unquote irregular, which is another word that sort of interested me. I think I'm sort of answering your question in in the most roundabout way possible. No, it's wonderful. Um, And the main characters who the boat people really talks with and visits with, they really come from a wide variety of backgrounds, but they all have a thread of family history of immigration in there. The man who we meet in the very first page, Mahindan, um, is just, you know, packed on a boat with his young son. Is that Salian? Is that his name? Yeah. So Mahindan and Salian, father and son, they are really the heart of the novel. And I wanted to follow them and their thread through their first year in Canada as they're trying to make their case 
really Mahindan the father, because his son is only six. Mahindan is trying to make a case to the authorities that he should be allowed to stay and that he is, he's trying to make a case that he has to stay and that if they send him back, he will be killed. So he and his son are really the heart of the novel, uh, but the novel is also told from two other points of view. So you get the point of view of Priya Rajasekaran, who is Mahindan's refugee lawyer. She's a second-generation Sri Lankan-Canadian. So she was born in Canada, but her parents immigrated um, in the 70s. And then the third point of view is um, Grace Nakamura, who is the adjudicator at the Immigration and Refugee Board. So she's the sort of, quote-unquote, you could call her a judge. Even though she is not a lawyer, she does not have a legal background but she is the adjudicator who has to decide what is going to happen to this man and his son. Will they be allowed to stay in Canada and begin new lives, or will they be sent back to Sri Lanka and certain death? I do want to get back to Priya because she is she's a law student who's finishing up her work, um, and she really is quite reluctant, honestly, at first to even get involved. This was not her choice to get involved with refugee work. But let's talk about Grace, uh, Grace Nakamura, for a, a while. She is really a fascinating character for me, both because, you know, her own feelings about refugees are, are really tinged with fear of um, you know, allowing terrorists into the country, things like that. But also because, you know, as an American, I've heard about our own policy of internment for Japanese Americans during World War II, but I really uh, didn't know anything about how Canada had done very similar things. Could you talk a little bit about Grace Nakamura and her family? Because I found that fascinating. Yeah, so Grace is a third-generation Japanese-Canadian. So she was born in Canada. She speaks English. She speaks Japanese as well because she was raised by her grandmother, who is first was when she was alive, first generation. So she was Issei. So her, Grace's grandparents came on a boat from Japan in the very early 1900s, and they and Grace's um, parents were the generation who were interned during the Second World War. So just as what happened in the U.S., same thing happened here. We just don't like to talk about it. And in fact, so I grew up in Ontario, which is the kind of physically the center of the country, far away from the West Coast, which is where the internment really happened in British Columbia. And when I was growing up in Ontario, this was not something we learned about in history class, which I think is shocking and appalling. We should be hearing about the things that the country did in the past. And in fact, until very recently, it was not even, I mean, this is a bit of a tangent, but we have these heritage commercials on TV, which are like very short commercials about Canada's history. And when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, they were always uh, very sort of congratulatory, self-congratulatory. And somehow they never talked about the parts of our heritage and our history that we would prefer to forget, like the uh, Japanese-Canadian internment. Um, and only very recently was there a heritage commercial made about the Japanese-Canadian internment. But yeah, I was interested in what I was trying to explore with Grace is this thing that interests me, which is the people who are often so quick to sh try to slam the door in newcomers' faces are people who you would not expect necessarily. So people who look like Grace, who are not white, who don't look like the majority of Canadians. And I think what I was really trying to explore there is at what point do you become so comfortable and feel so aligned with the majority that you start to try to 
push off new people who are coming. And that's, and for a long time, I, I couldn't understand Grace because her way of thinking is so different from mine. And then one day in 2015, which was the last time that we had a federal election, uh, it was a very ugly federal election um, because we really were, many, many people were sort of trying hard to push out the old government, the old conservative government. And that old conservative group of voters and the government was really fighting back in a nasty way. And there was a lot of talk at the time about uh, Syrian refugees in particular, because this was 2015. The Syrian war was in its, uh, I think, fourth year at that point. And there were so many people who were trying to come over to Canada. Um, And I was listening to some people, you know, they were people who looked like me. They were brown-skinned people talking about how we could not trust these newcomers. Who were they? We couldn't trust them. And the fear that I heard, it sort of it was like a light bulb went off. And I thought, oh, this is Grace's problem. It's fear that is motivating her. And once I figured that out, I sort of had to go back and, and unstitch all the parts where I had written her in and then weave in this um, this real sense of fear and I thought fear coupled with ignorance, those two things together are, are such a potent concoction that can really poison people against anyone they don't recognize as being like themselves. There's a really powerful passage in your book, actually. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind uh, reading it aloud for our listeners. And this is, uh, just to set it up, this is Grace is speaking with her mother, Kumi, who is dealing with I think it's early onset dementia or or a form of Alzheimer's Um, and Grace. Yeah. And Grace doesn't understand why her mother suddenly wants to talk about the internment and uh, wants to tell Grace's twin daughters so much about it. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to set this up a little bit more. So in Grace's family, you know, I said her, her grandparents were the Issei generation, the generation who came on the boats. They were boat people. And then her Mother's generation, they were born in Canada, so they're Nisei, second generation, and then Grace is third generation. And the what I learned when I was doing the research into the Canadian, the Japanese Canadian internment was that the people who were adults during the internment, so Grace's grandmother and grandfather, once the internment w- was over, one of the horrible things that happened was that they were given this awful choice to either be quote-unquote repatriated, a.k.a. deported back to war-torn post-war Japan with their families, some of whom, you know, had been born here and did not speak a word of Japanese, or the other option was to go east of the Rockies. So leave British Columbia, leave the places where they, the only places they had known, and basically go work as indentured indentured servants in like the beet farms of the prairies. And how that generation coped was that they said, we are looking forward, we are not looking back. And there was this, this expression, it can't be helped, which I just kept coming up across everywhere I looked. And this generation, so Grace's grandmother's generation, they said, it can't be helped. We are not going to talk about what happened in the past. So it was never spoken about. So the fam- there's family history. There's sort of amnesia around the family history. And so that's kind of why I decided to give uh, Grace's mother, Kumi, Alzheimer's, because I thought, what happens when you start to forget your own, your own past? How does that make you feel about um, the past that came before yours? 
And so Grace's mother, Kumi, is um, trying to kind of resurrect and find out what exactly happened to the family, you know, what happened to the house that she was born in. And she's trying to, before all of her memories go, give this legacy on to her grandchildren, Grace's children. And Grace is very opposed to this. She wants to look forward and kind of forget the fact that she really just wants to forget that she also was a boat person. Okay, so so Kumi and Grace have, are in a cafe and they're having a snack and they're talking. Grace rotated the handle of her mug one way, then the other. I didn't realize you were so angry, she said. Kumi sighed. Your father and I, we thought at a certain point, the bitterness must end. You are Canadian. We did not want you to hate this country. And the girls, Grace asked, what about them? We were wrong, Kumi said. All through school, who were your friends? The man you married. You are Canadian in a way your father and I could never be. Her mother was right, Grace thought. The twins could take a nuanced view balancing the wrongs of the past against the good fortune of their present. Had this been her concern all along, that they would turn against their country? I regret it, Kumi said. By repeating our parents' mistakes, we did you a disservice. She threaded and unthreaded her fingers, tugging her wedding ring on and off. How could it happen, she said, the internment. Certain people felt too rooted, too comfortable. They took it for granted that they deserved to be here more than us. Entitlement closed their hearts. Grace saw where this was headed. Mom, she said, please, let's not start this again. At one time, Kumi said, didn't they say terrible things about the Irish, that they were dirty, that they were poor, that they had diseases? Energy revived. She was on a roll. But after a while, the Irish came to be accepted. And then people forgot the stones thrown at their grandparents and threw those stained stones at others. We have been over all of this, Grace said, crumpling her napkin and reaching for her coat. Just, just listen, Kumi said. Let me finish. I know you think I'm trying to tell you how to do your job. And you aren't? Grace wound her scarf around her neck. It always came down to the same thing with her mother. Critique. Nothing she ever did would ever be right. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for reading that passage. We're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. And when we return, we're going to talk more about the Harper Lee Prize and Sharon Bala's debut novel, The Boat People. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? In her head note, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. 
Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm here with author Sharon Bala, winner of the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction in 2019. So, Sharon, we've talked a little bit about The Boat People, but we haven't talked about why I first came to read The Boat People, which was that your book was submitted for the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction. Um, did you even know that you were being considered for the prize, or was this <laughs> a, an entire a new information? No, it was completely new information. I had no idea. I never actually know um, when my publishing house submits uh, my book to anything. I never really know unless it lands on a prize list. And honestly, that's the way I like it. It's like the best prizes, the best lists are the ones that I have no idea they're coming. And then there's no stress in advance. In the United States, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee's most famous book, is really a touchstone, and most kids do grow up having it as required reading. Is it as popular in Canada? Yeah, it definitely is. And, you know, <laughs> I love, I loved To Kill a Mockingbird. So I read it, it was on the curriculum um, in grade 10 English, and it was the first school book that I remember really loving as much as the other books that I would read on my spare time. And so the way we were supposed to read it is um, the teacher had split it up into, you know, from this page to this page. And then the next time the homework was from like that page to the next page or whatever. Uh, I took it home in the first weekend. I just finished it. And I remember thinking, this is what adult literature is like. It's so good. <laughs> and um, so I read it again. I just re read it, reread it. And of course, now I see that it's very much, I don't know if it's written for children so much, but because it's, you know, Scout's point of view and she's just a little girl, I now see it as being very much um, a children's book, but still somehow having, first of all, this on the level of the sentence, the writing is gorgeous. And now that I'm a writer myself, I mean, one of, you know, when you go back to books that you loved, you always sort of feel like, oh, what if it doesn't stand the test of time? Or what if now that I'm an adult, I'm not going to appreciate it? Um, I had those things. Always a danger. I had those concerns. But then I, I think I appreciate it more now because I can really appreciate the sentence level prose, which is beautiful. And also the way that she, that Harper Lee so beautifully showed us things without being preachy about it. So, and, you know, now as an adult, I, I saw so many things in the book, like, you know, the section where um, Scout and Jem go to church with Calpurnia, they like go to the black church. And there's this lovely scene where Calpurnia suddenly code switches and she speaks a different way in her own community. And there's a conversation that the children have with her when they're walking home from school. And I, I just think, I, w I wish we had talked about all of that in school. Like, I wish we had, there was so much more to the book than what we talked about when we were in school. So it was really a good exercise to go back and read it. And when you talk about code switching, one of the most interesting things I think about the character Priya, who is the law student who gets really kind of dragged into uh, helping mm -hmm. out in Mahindan's case is because of the way she was raised and the choices that her parents made not to be um, very involved in the Sri Lankan immigrant community, she sees, you know, other people her age who, you know, whose parents were also Sri Lankan immigrants or who were themselves Sri Lankan immigrants 
And she, there's this one moment where she's looking at someone, like I said, who's about her age. And she says to herself, if she went back to Sri Lanka, people wouldn't speak to her in English like they do me. Priya isn't able to code switch and feel like she can fit into both communities. Could you talk a little bit about that choice and about the character of Priya? Yeah. So Priya, uh, and this is something that happens a lot in the Tamil community, specifically the Tamil diaspora, is that there was at least for a certain point in time, people who came in the 70s, the 80s, maybe even the early 90s, many of our families made the kind of conscious choice to say, we're not going to associate with any Tamils who we don't know. And it was a little bit protective because you don't really know who who's part of, who's like a sympathizer with the LTTE. You don't know who's going to start asking you for money, if you're going to get in trouble. And so many of us were sort of discouraged against, first of all, getting involved in anything political. So, you know, there's a, in the book, Priya thinks about how when she was at the University of British Columbia, there was a Tamil Students Association and her father said, don't get involved in all of that. That's politics. We're here now. And then when she's working on these cases, she meets Charlika, who is an interpreter, a translator. And so she's purposely kind of given two names in the book. Her name is Charlika. She sometimes goes by Charlie. And that to me was like, Charlie, Charlika, she's kind of one of these people who is, I would call third culture, where she can go back and forth between being very Canadian and speaking English with a you know Canadian accent, and then very quickly switch to speaking Tamil with a Tamil accent. And if she, you know, when Charlie goes to Sri Lanka, everyone just assumes she's Sri Lankan. No one looks at her and says, where are you from? By which they mean, which part of the Western world are you from? But Priya, she doesn't really have that. She can't speak Tamil. She can't understand much of it either. She can only speak English, maybe a little bit of French. And she really doesn't feel like she can go back and forth because the only Sri Lankan culture she has is her family. And this is a bit of a fictionalization because even those of us who are here, we tend to have big extended family and family friend groups. But for the purpose of the book, I had to sort of really keep Priya's family very small. But yeah, I sort of I liked playing with that ident that question of identity, and then of course from a Hinden, the question that is sort of also lurking in his mind is best case scenario he and Selian get to stay and begin their new lives, but he's already by the end of the book seeing how if this happens, Selian will never really be his child in the way that Selian would have been his child if they had stayed in Sri Lanka, because. Anyone who comes to Canada or the U.S. and brings or has a child here, that child is always going to be Canadian or American in a way that the parents can never be. If you even think of something like accent, often names, cultural touchstones, you know, we're talking about talking about Harper Lee's book, which, of course, like every child who went through school in Canada has read probably, but probably not immigrant parents. Right. And so. I think I was also playing with this idea of the sorrow and heartbreak that comes even when your dream comes true, right? Even when you get to settle down and stay and make your, your home in a new place, the sorrow of then having children who are strangers to you. And one of the things that you, when you first started writing this book in 2013, you know, you had no way of anticipating. Um, in America, obviously, we are dealing with 
the after effects of the government's decision to separate families. And Mahindan and Selian are separated. Mahindan must stay in the men's jail, and he has to entrust his child first to um, oh, oh, another woman refugee and then to foster parents who don't even speak Tamil, so they cannot you know, directly communicate necessarily with his son until his son learns English. And some of the powerful imagery in the book is Mahindan, who's raised Selian since his wife died in childbirth. He said, you know, I've never been a day without my son. And when they're first separated, he keeps involuntarily sort of reaching out to feel for his son's hand and his son isn't there. How were you able to inhabit the mind of a parent who's going through that and also try and show through sort of outsider views how Selian is being affected by that and affected by the trauma of being separated from his father? This is one of those things that I took from real life. So when the real ship, the MV Sunsea, came, everyone was immediately like escorted off and taken to prison. And the men were put in a maximum security prison called Fraser Valley Correctional. And the women were sent to a women's uh, medium security prison, which had facilities for children. And so for a while anyway, anyone who was a minor on that real ship was in the women's prison. And then at a certain point I read, it was in a uh, newspaper article, it was almost like a postscript that said that some of the children had been sent to foster care. And then I sort of dug, I said, what? So I dug around a bit more and I could find nothing else. But I, that gave me the idea, oh, this is what's going to happen to the child in my book. And then from there, it's just imagination. I mean, I'm, I'm not a parent, so I can only imagine what that heartbreak is like. But really, writing is always an act of imagination. And it's always an act of putting yourself into the emotional experience of each of the characters. And I, I guess I was thinking a lot about grief and loss, but also hope. Because I think when... Mahindan reaches out his hand for Selian. It's almost like a, the missing limb, limb thing, right? When people have lost a limb and they talk about still feeling that limb, it's almost like he's, he's still kind of expecting that hand to be there. But I think that's also hope. He's thinking, one day my child's hand will be here. And that hope it really sustains him through much of the novel. So when I first started reading the book, I was entirely ignorant um, as to what had happened in Sri Lanka uh, and learned a lot through your book and then it prompted me to do more reading. Uh, but could you explain a little bit about, you used the acronym LTTE, uh, why were these refugees being looked at with fear and what were the uh, suspicions towards them based on that the Canadian government was uh, so worried that there could be, you know, terrorist implications. What was happening in Sri Lanka, and what was Mahindan dealing with when he was living there? Okay, I'll try. I'm going to try to summarize this really quickly. <laughs> um, <laughs> Twenty-six years so, of civil war. Go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, even this actually begins before that. So, more like uh, almost. 500 years of colonial rule. So Sri Lanka is an island off the coast of India. And from the 1500s on, it was under colonial rule. It was the Portuguese, the Dutch, and then in the end, it was the British. 
And then just after the Second World War, uh, Britain gave uh, Sri Lanka its independence. And, you know, they had just fought like a bloody rebellion up in India before they gave up India. And I think with Sri Lanka, they had sort of learned their lesson. And so the handover of power was bloodless, which seems really optimistic. But then what happened was after the British left, so Sri Lanka, the the majority of the population is Sinhalese. The Sinhalese are, um, majority of them are Buddhist, and they speak a language called Sinhala, which is very different from the Tamil language, Tamil. They come from two different roots, so it's not even like as close as French and English. I mean, they're totally different languages with completely different written systems. And the Tamils are Hindu, not Buddhist. So different languages, different religions. And for most of the con- in most of the country, the two people live in different villages as well. So the Tamils live in the north and the east, and the Sinhalese live in the rest of the country. But in the capital city of Colombo, of course, everyone kind of lives and works side by side. There are Sinhalese, there are Tamils, there are Muslims, and there are Burgers, which is basically just the colonial people who stayed and intermarried. So after the British left, there was this real surge of nationalism. And this might sound familiar, so buckle up. There was this real surge of nationalism. And the rallying cry was, Singhala first, Sri Lanka for the Singhalese. So through the 50s and 60s, this tension was rising between the two groups, and it was really caused by this virulent nationalism, and it was also a chauvinist nationalism. And there was a group of hardline, right-wing, like very pro-Buddhist, pro-Singhalese people who said, this is a country for the Singhalese. What are these Tamils doing here? They should go back to India, which... It's kind of funny because the Sinhalese and the Tamils both came from India, like in the time before Christ. So to say they should go back to India is a bit bit rich. But basically, the government uh, enacted a series of things to sideline the Tamils, including, for example, there were um, limitations on how many Tamils would be allowed into university. And so, of course, then these ethnic tensions are rising. There were riots through the 50s and 60s. And then the whole thing was a powder keg, and it blew up in 1983. July of 1983, there was a three-day riot in the capital city of Colombo, where the Sinhalese turned viciously against the Tamils. And, you know, people were doused in petrol and set on fire. It was that kind of violence. And that is what caused many people to like Sinhalese and Tamil people, but especially Tamil people, to flee the country. There was a big exodus in the 80s. So, of course, when the government, the state army, is fighting against the Tamils, then the Tamils rise up. And there were all these militant groups, but the one that was the the strongest was the LTTE, which stands for the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam. And they said, if you won't let us live in peace in a country with you, then give us, separate the country Give us the north and the east and let us be, um, let us have our own country where we can live in peace and harmony. And of course, the government said no. I mean, this is not different from what happened in Ireland, right? With the IRA. It was very, very similar. So uh, 30 years of, not 30, 24, so 83 to 2009, it was just civil war. was fought between the governments, the Sri Lankan army and the, the Tamil Tigers. And whether you want to call them freedom fighters or terrorists, either way, the Canadian government was very afraid that people on the boat 
were tigers. And for some reason, the Canadian government said, well, they're just going to restart the war once they get here, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, we're nowhere close to Sri Lanka. It would be very difficult to restart a war from here. So one of the main criteria of the Harper Lee Prize for Legal Fiction is that uh, the book that's chosen illuminates the role of lawyers and the rule of law um, in society. As you were writing this book, as you were considering how people were interacting with government forces, both in Sri Lanka and in Canada. What did you come to feel about the role of the rule of law in in culture? Hmm. I love that expression, the rule of law, because it was used a lot by politicians in Canada who were trying very hard to keep people out. So first of all, you know, I'm sure it's the same in, well, I don't know actually if it's the same in the U.S., but many of our politicians are lawyers by training, And so you would think that they would know the law. And I think that they do know the law, but sometimes what they choose to remember about their law school training is sort of interesting. So uh, as part of my research, I read the refugee law textbook. And what I learned is that we have a system in place which is there to, you know, determine who gets to come in as a refugee and who is not allowed to come in as a refugee. I learned that there were two ways of um, applying to be a refugee. You can apply from outside Canada from wherever you happen to be, let's say that's Sri Lanka, let's say that's Syria, or maybe you're in a refugee camp, like you've already fled and you're in Jordan or somewhere else, you can go to the high commission or the embassy in whatever country you're in, put in your paperwork and cross your fingers and hope that we accept you. And if we accept you, then you come. Or you can come to the border and beg for sanctuary and asylum. And both of those ways are perfectly legal ways of asking for refugee status. And then if you come to the border, there is, again, a system in place for determining who gets to stay and who is deported. But how the system works for each individual, what I learned is that that is capricious. And so some people arrive at the border. And as I said, most people who arrive at the border and claim asylum come on a plane. And so maybe they arrive here in my home of St. John's. We have an airport. They come to the border here and they you know, come to customs and they say, I'm here to claim asylum. And then their case proceeds through the system quietly, unremarkably. No one has any idea they're here because, frankly, the media doesn't care because it's only one person or two people or five people in a small family group. But then there are other people who don't have access to uh, money for plane tickets or they don't have a passport and they come a different way. Maybe they come on foot across the American border. Maybe they come on a boat. And when they come on a boat, it's so exceptional because we get so, so, so few boats. In fact, there has not been another boat since 2010. And now it is 2019. So maybe we're due. But when you come on a boat and there are, say, 492 people on this boat, as there were for the MV Sunsea, well, suddenly everyone is interested. And it's like the media spotlight turns on you not just national, but international media. And there is so much pressure on the government to decide what are you going to do about these people? And that is where it can get capricious because then it's like the system gets thrown away and they just decide on the fly, what are we going to do? And it's more about the message the government is trying to send. And so, you know, in 2015, we, as I said, we had an election and we elected our 
current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. And there was, um, you probably saw it in the States too, but there was a group of, of Syrian refugees who came uh, at the plane on the plane, with a plane load of them, and they were greeted in this big kind of song and dance. You know, government ministers went and said, welcome, you're very welcome here. And that's lovely, but that's also a different kind of public relations, right? I'm more interested in what's happening when the cameras aren't on you, right? So it's so capricious. Sometimes to me, it just seemed like it wasn't about who you are or where you came from or what peril you had fled or even what you brought to the country. It was more about how did you arrive? How were we feeling as a country in the moment when you arrived? Were we in a good mood? Were we in bad mood? And I looked backward over time. So, you know, back to like the the war, the Second World War, back over to how, how we treated the Vietnamese who came in the 70s. I know you also welcomed the Vietnamese. We did too. What about the Kamagato Maru, which was a boat of Sikh people who came from northern India in 1914? We were a British colony then. India was a British colony. So it was British citizens coming to another British colony. And they were turned away and sent back to death. There was another ship the MS St. Louis, which I know was also turned away from the U.S. This came in 1939 with Jewish refugees who had fled Eastern Europe. Guess what? We sent them back. And these are things that we apologize for 100 years after the fact. But, you know, I just, I found it so mind-boggling that it didn't, the rule of law didn't seem to matter, was what I found. And that's so upsetting. Deeply upsetting. Well, Sharon, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. Uh, do you have a project that you're working on now? What's what's next for you? <laughs> I seem to be writing another legal book somehow. <laughs> uh, I'm working on another novel. It's very different from this one. Yeah, I guess the, the legal thing I'm researching now is um, what happens when there is a death on the job. Well, we'll look forward to that. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know why I'm doing another legal book. Well, John Grisham has won the Harper <laughs> Lee Prize twice, so perhaps uh, if you if you finish this one up and it gets entered, maybe it'll be the second one for you too. I will cross my fingers. Yeah, cross your fingers. Thank you to Sharon for joining us to talk about her book, The Boat People. And thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate, and review on your favorite podcast listening service.